Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of After the Final Whistle here on WSOE. I am your host, Brad Clear. It is Friday, September 20th, and once again back here on WSOE, the second episode of the season. And as usual for podcast.com and Apple Podcast listeners. Um, Big week in the football world. Two hours ago or so, getting another addition to that crazy week that it's been in the NFL, Antonio Brown uh, released by the New England Patriots after 11 days on the roster. At this point with Antonio Brown, I don't know if anyone touches him or picks him up. I don't think any team should pick him up. At this point, you know, especially with the story that came out today, right? Very, it was a very, um, the story that came out today from Robert Klemko at SI, in addition to everything else that's gone on to this point, um, with previous stories and previous issues and accusations, um, and lawsuits and whatnot. Again, it paints a very, very bad picture. And the one today really was the cherry on top in terms of it really being a disturbing um, example of evidence against Antonio Brown um, threatening um, the uh, woman via text message uh, that the original SI article from earlier this week um The woman, not the one who is suing him and accusing him of sexual assault, but the one that SI wrote an article about earlier this week, coming to them and SI verifying through their own investigation and their own actions that it was Antonio Brown starting that group message with his lawyer and other individuals um, and threatening her with disturbing uh, messages and imagery. This guy has no place on an NFL team right now, point blank. I don't want to belabor and talk too much about Antonio Brown here. Um... But no team should touch him. I don't think anyone will. I think at this point, I would suspect some sort of suspension does end up occurring. I'm not going to go as far as saying he's definitely played his last down in the NFL. He should. But, you know, I'm not going to think that that's what's going to happen here because, you know, who knows what the um, league is thinking and what ends up happening in a year from now or whatnot. But I, I think at least for this year, I'd be surprised to see another team sign him and for him to be a mainstay on an NFL team for the rest of this season. Um, And quite frankly, that should be the case. He should not be signed uh, by another NFL team um, with this current situation. All right, enough enough about Antonio Brown here. Let's go over to the New York Giants. Now, if you're a previous listener of this podcast, of this radio show, here on WSOE, iTunes, or podcast.com, When the Giants drafted Daniel Jones sixth overall back in April in the draft, you know that I was incredibly outspoken against the pick. I mean, I wasn't alone in that. Significant voices or significant amount of voices were against that pick as, you know, it still was the wrong pick. Um, But Daniel Jones is now the starting quarterback for the New York Giants. And it was the right move to make and the timing was right. And it was the best opportunity based on their schedule to get him in there. You look at the first two games that Manning had. um, 
you look at how Jones played in the preseason. Jones was good in the preseason. Very impressive. He played in garbage time against Dallas. And in that game also, he looked pretty good as well. And Manning, look, Eli Manning has done great things for the New York Giants organization. They won two Super Bowls. He's been the franchise guy for 15 years. He's washed. Quite frankly, he's been washed for a couple years now. And I guess it's better late, uh, better late than never to make this um, shift at the quarterback spot. Now, you'll know if you've listened to me in the past, this shift should have come uh, in 2018. They should have drafted um, a quarterback at second overall instead of Saquon Barkley. But what's done is done. Um, next three weeks, you have the Bucks this week, you have the Redskins, then you have the Vikings before matchup with the Patriots. So you give Daniel Jones, as the new starting quarterback, three weeks against relatively not difficult opponents, you would think, uh, to sort of get in there and to get his footing in that mainstay starting role. And really, you have to see what you have in Daniel Jones, especially with what he showed you in the preseason. I am personally, I'm a big believer in the philosophy of, you know, I, I don't like the idea of you, you draft a quarterback or you acquire a quarterback using uh, valuable resources and you sit them behind a veteran for X amount of games or for half a season or for a year or whatever. I, I'm not a believer in that. I think you just got to th- not throw them to the wolves, but you have to get reps. You have to get live game uh action and live game reps to really develop, not just be in the quarterback room and observe what a veteran quarterback is able to do. So I'm, I'm again, if I'm developing a quarterback, I want to get that quarterback out there and give them as many reps as possible. And when you look at the Giants team right now, it's a good situation to do that with Daniel Jones because this team is a bad football team who has no expectation on themselves for this season So it's not as if you're putting him in there instead of a veteran and the growing pains that will inevitably come with him in that role will lessen your ability to win or to get a wild card spot or a division spot or whatever because this team is bad. This is one of the five worst teams, six worst teams in the NFL. So you're going to be a bad team anyway. You're not going to make the playoffs. You're going to be a team in the bottom of the league. So you get the quarterback in there. You get the reps. You allow him to develop with live game action. That's what's going to give the Giants and Daniel Jones the greatest benefit as far as his development process for this uh, for this season. Because quite frankly, what's happened is they've staked this franchise on Daniel Jones. That's not a sentence I would like to have about my organization, but it's the reality that the New York Giants have put themselves in. And look, for as much criticism as I and others have directed towards that pick, you have to recognize Jones looked has looked good in the opportunities he has been given in preseason in garbage time against Dallas. I think also just looking at it structurally as far as how he impacts the offense, Jones adds some elements that Eli Manning clearly, especially in these two games, just did not have. First off, uh, he adds a mobile component. There is the ability for them to integrate some RPO action into their offense with him and Barkley, um, some zone read option stuff they could integrate there as well. And on top of the mobile component, you're going to see 
big throws and shots taken down the field. They have the ability now to do that with Jones as someone who, in theory, can air it out and in theory can have a mobile component to him. Um, I think that you'll see, you know, Evan Ingram be that very, very heavily relied upon safety blanket for him. Uh, Lots of short, intermediate throws. You'll still see Barkley, should see Barkley, get significant volume. But they can add some elements into the offense that were with Eli in that spot were obviously not possible. So, especially with Barkley there, I, I would like to see them integrate some RPO, some zone read, and to take more shots down the field because those are skill sets and things that you can do with Daniel Jones, a quarterback that you couldn't do before with Eli Manning in that role. So again, it's better late than never that they're moving on from Eli to a successor. The fact that it is this successor in Daniel Jones, it is what it is at this point. And we're taking out the whole passing on a quarterback to pick a running back second overall and not keeping Landon Collins and trading Odell Beckham. Let's just take all that out of the equation. Simply look at the fact that, hey, Eli Manning was as washed as you could be, has been for a couple years. Daniel Jones impressed in the preseason. This team is going nowhere. You need live game action to develop your quarterback, and you can add some elements into the offense that may benefit Jones' development in the offense as a whole. So to me, it was a no-brainer, especially with the fact that they're playing the Patriots in Week 6. Um, especially with the fact that they're playing the Patriots in Week 6, Getting him in there for three weeks before that, I think, will be highly beneficial rather than throwing him to the wolves, so to speak, very early on in his tenure and having that matchup against the Patriots. So I'm interested to see how this goes. You know, I think this week against Tampa, I think that's a matchup. I think to have him play that first game, it's a good matchup for him. And look, I was incredibly critical of Daniel Jones, as were many people. Was he the right person to stake this franchise on? No, he wasn't. Has he been better and looked better than many, including myself, had thought he would? Yes. Was this the right move to make? Yes. It is what it is. I'm actually excited to see some New York Giants offense. Crazy statement. I'm actually excited to see all the different things that they can integrate with Jones's skill set that has some capabilities that Eli did not have. Sticking with the young quarterbacks and Quarterbacks in the 2018 draft who could have been a good pick for the Giants at second overall instead of picking a running back. Let's go down to Miami and let's go to Josh Rosen, who has now been made by head coach Brian Flores, the new head or excuse me, the new starting quarterback for the Miami Dolphins, Fitzmagic to the bench. To me, I never saw any value in the Dolphins playing anyone besides Josh Rosen at quarterback for their 16 games this year because you have to see what you have in him. And they traded their second, la- or they traded down from 48, got a pick in the early 60s, and got a 2020 second also, and then took that pick in the 60s and the fifth for 2020 and set that for Josh Rosen. But the whole MO of this strategy that the Dolphins are taking, 100% the right strategy to take, I'll say it till I'm blue in the face, the whole MO here is to find that franchise quarterback and then to build around that, right? That, that's what it all comes down to. Now, I've said this before on this podcast, I don't think Josh Rosen is the long-term answer here, 
and they're going to be picking a quarterback in 2020 in the draft, likely at 1-1, regardless of what Josh Rosen does this year. And I can't fault that, because even though I like Josh Rosen, the quarterback position is so incredibly valuable, you have to take as many swings and opportunities and hits as you can in order to find that true, potentially elite, difference-making quarterback. Because if you don't find that, you're already limiting your team ceiling for 10 to 15 years. The quarterback is so crucially important. And I've gotten into that on so many episodes before. I think what likely happens with Rosen here, look, the, the situation that he's coming into is abysmal. Now, as even supporting the Dolphins process, as I did with the Browns and, of course, the Sixers, you still, I mean, I still acknowledge the fact that, hey, this is a very bad football team that probably won't win any games this year. It's there's no, there, I don't think there's any benefit to them winning a game this year because you have to ensure you get the first overall pick. But the knock last year with Rosen was what? He had a bad offensive line and he didn't have good weapons around him. I've said this before. Other people have seen it and said it. He's coming into a situation now, the offensive line is worse than that Cardinals offensive line from last year. The weapons at his disposal are worse than the weapons he had at his disposal with the Cardinals last year. He's coming into a situation, and this is something that um, on GetUp and on Twitter, Lewis Riddick has really been saying a lot. Now, I disagree with him on the uh, strategy they're taking, but his points about Rosen are dead on in that Coming into this situation with a bad offensive line, with poor weapons around him, they're picking a quarterback regardless in 2020, but this is not a situation in which the Dolphins can truly evaluate Josh Rosen as a quarterback because he's in a suboptimal situation in which he's going to be heavily pressured on every single throw he makes. Now, they have some nice receivers who I like. You know, Albert Wilson is hurt, but I like Preston Williams. I like Jakeem Grant. But the weapons are not that great. The protection is is really, really bad. He's going to be hit and pressured on, as I said, almost every single play. So how can you truly see what your quarterback prospect in Josh Rosen, how can you truly see what you have in him and truly evaluate him in this type of situation? You can't. You quite frankly cannot do that. And it'll be interesting to see it play out. As I said, I do not think he's the long-term answer. And even if he's not the long-term answer, on that three um, three years left on his contract before the fifth-year option, uh, making a total, including this year, of $6 million, that's incredibly cheap even for a backup quarterback. And I... As I've said before on this podcast, I'm a big believer in Josh Rosen being in the top 12 uh, eventually. He's someone who has the ability to eventually be a top 12 quarterback in this league. And to have someone with that skill set, a top 10 picked quarterback, as your incredibly cheap backup quarterback to a number one overall pick potentially in Tua as your starting quarterback, that's a fantastic situation. And then, of course... There's the possibility of, hey, Rosen comes out there now and he plays great and the Dolphins have themselves two good young quarterbacks or they're able to regain the value that they sent out to get Rosen and it becomes kind of a no net loss, no net gain 
got the return on him, saw what they had in him, and they have Tua moving forward. So, to me, I, I talked about this with Jones, the idea of playing the veteran quarterback before the young quarterback. Now, I know the Dolphins have been preaching the whole competition at every position thing, but there is never any benefit to playing Ryan Fitzpatrick before Josh Rosen, regardless of what they showed in training camp or the preseason. You have to see what you have in Rosen. You have to be able to evaluate him um, this year, even though I don't think you can do that in this situation. You have to at least give yourself the ability to have some game reps with Josh Rosen, who you just traded for, before moving forward this season. He has to be in this position for the rest of the season. Even if he's not playing well or struggles, or if he's getting hit and destroyed at every single play, Rosen has to be the starting quarterback every single game the rest of the season. No wavering with him and Fitzpatrick. No bringing in Fitzpatrick in garbage time like Rosen had done um, in the games before this coming weekend. Rosen's got to be in there for every single play that he's healthy to be able to play for the rest of the season. I do worry, though, for his health because he's going to get hit a ton. Uh, this is a guy who had dealt with injuries in college. So, you know, in that sense, it is a bit worrisome. But as I said, it's the right move to make for them. He should have been the starter from day one. But at the same time, he's kind of in a situation where he's set up to fail because he's at a deficiency with all the talent around him. And you're not going to be able to truly evaluate him as a quarterback and for him, you know, to have that year with it, uh, with Arizona last year and to have this year with Miami, both be years where he's, you know, clearly not the long-term answer, is behind a poor offensive line with bad weapons around him for two years in a row, that's a pretty unfortunate start to a career for a good quarterback prospect in Josh Rosen. So I'm intrigued to see how he'll do. Frankly, I don't think he'll be able to show much of anything because of how much pressure he'll receive on every single play and the talent around him. But Miami has to see what they have in him. And if nothing else, he's an incredibly talented backup on a super cheap deal to your franchise guy in Tua or whoever it may be. Moving along now from Josh Rosen, sticking a little bit with the Dolphins, but we're talking about because of the big trade that happened earlier this week Minka Fitzpatrick traded to Pittsburgh, Miami getting back Pittsburgh's first round pick in the upcoming draft in 2020. Uh, they also swapped a fourth, Miami sent a fourth to Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh sent their fifth to Miami for this coming draft in 2020, and then Pittsburgh and Miami swapped a sixth and a seventh in 2021, Miami got Pittsburgh's sixth, Pittsburgh got Miami's seventh. So Miami comes out of it with Pittsburgh's 2021st, Pittsburgh's 2025th, and Pittsburgh's 2021 sixth. And Pittsburgh comes out of it with Minka Fitzpatrick, uh, a fourth-round pick from Miami, either Tennessee's or Miami's, and Miami's 2021 seventh. So let's look at this from both sides. I think the Pittsburgh side of this is very, very interesting. But we'll start with the Dolphins side. You got a first-round pick. From a team that's not going to, very, 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 very likely is not going to make the playoffs. For a guy who clearly wanted out, and based off of everything that was said, it was a non-salvageable situation. So they had a guy who wanted out, and they got a first-round pick from a team who won't make the playoffs. Chris Greer continues 
to absolutely destroy the asset game. He, he's doing an incredible job with amassing all of this draft capital and assets and flexibility for the Dolphins coming up and moving forward. You have three first-round picks now in this upcoming draft, and this seemingly was a trade where they were at the point of no return with Fitzpatrick, and it had to be done. And what adding more elite quality draft capital in 2020 does for the Dolphins, in addition to the fact that it gives them more options to take in more talent through the draft right away, it also gives them the option to use it, and this is a you know a strategy I would very much like to see them take, is they can trade down or trade out in lots of different spots and add more draft capital for 2021. So by adding more draft capital now, not only are they increasing their ability to add good young talent right away, but they also have the ability to give themselves more options down the line to add good young talent. It just further increases their optionality, which you can never have enough of in the situation the Dolphins are in. Look at their draft, this upcoming draft in 2020. Their first, the Texans first, the Steelers first. Their own second, the Saints second. Their own third, a third-round comp pick that they'll probably get uh, for Juwan James signing with Denver. The Steelers fifth, a comp fifth-round pick uh, for Cameron Wake. Their own sixth, Dallas's sixth for Robert Quinn. And then a seventh-round pick, which is either theirs or Kansas City's because they traded one of the two for Danny Isadora. Then we look at 2021. They have their first and the Texans first, as well as their second and the Texans second, their own third, their own fourth, their own fifth, and then Pittsburgh's sixth. The seventh they traded in this trade with Pittsburgh, and the sixth went out in the Laramie Tunsil trade. So significant quality at the top of the draft for the next two years, the Miami Dolphins, on top of over $100 million in cap space. Now it hurts to take a guy who should have been a long-term piece for this team um, and have to trade him, but it seemed they were at the point of no return. They got a great return for him. So great work there, as usual, with Chris Greer and amassing assets. Now let's get to the really interesting part of it. Let's look at it from the Steelers' standpoint. From the Steelers' standpoint, they gave up a first in a year in which their quarterback, Ben Roethlisberger, is out for the year. They're already 0-2, so it's risky. Immediately acknowledge that it's risky. And clearly what this shows is they have confidence in Mason Rudolph to be a decent to solid quarterback stepping in in that spot for Ben Roethlisberger. I don't think this is a playoff team, regardless of how bad or good or mediocre Mason Rudolph is. Even coming into this season with a healthy Ben Roethlisberger, I did not see this Steelers team as a playoff team. So, even still, right? Ben's out for the year. They already weren't a playoff team. Even still, you get Minka Fitzpatrick, a guy who's a high-quality slot corner who can also play safety, for three years before his fifth-year option at yearly cap hits of $1.2 million, $1.9 million, and $2.2 million, plus that fifth-year option. So you have him, including this year, for four years. And 
that provides them with how talented of a player he is at the age that he is and the contract that you're paying him based off of uh, getting him in a trade, that provides you a pretty good amount of surplus value. And that surplus value, based off how good he is and what you'd be paying him and how talented he is, I kind of think that if that Pittsburgh pick in the first round ends up outside of the top 10, then that contract surplus value and talent that Minka Fitzpatrick gives you, I think that is greater than whatever you could have gotten in the first round of this draft outside of the top 10. I truly do. I like Minka Fitzpatrick a lot. You got him on a super cheap deal. So if this pick is, I I think this pick will end up being somewhere between 8 and 15. So if this is from 11 to 15, then I think this trade is worth it for Pittsburgh. I truly do. And furthermore, why I get their thinking behind this, because I think that whole surplus value aspect of it was definitely part of their thinking. They really haven't been able to develop players well in their secondary. And Minka Fitzpatrick has already proven through last year that he's a high-quality slot corner. He can play well at safety also. And you're only paying him those minuscule figures that I just outlined. So there's a lot of value there. But still, you have to look at it. If Mason Rudolph ends up you know, being just bad, he's just bad, he's not good, and he does not allow Pittsburgh to be a competitive team, then this could end up being a pick within the top 10 that is of pretty high value. And you also look at it for Pittsburgh, let's say Mason Rudolph isn't good, then perhaps you've taken away your ability, should that pick end up in the top 10, to draft a quarterback as your successor to Ben Roethlisberger. Perhaps. You know, maybe that's an option that would have existed to them if Mason Rudolph is bad and the pick ends up around 8 in the top 10. As I said, I think this pick ends up being between 8 and 15. But overall... I look at it for Pittsburgh, I get their thinking here. A lot of people immediately did not like it for them with the fact that they won't have Ben Roethlisberger all year and will be at a deficient level compared to where they otherwise would have been at the quarterback spot. But if you're drafting from 11 to 15 or 16, Minka Fitzpatrick is probably better than any player who you'd pick in that spot and you'd be paying Minka Fitzpatrick less than you'd be, play, uh, be paying a player that you picked in that spot. And he plays in a role in which they've had trouble developing players in recent years. You know, you can play him at slot corner. You could play him at free safety next to Terrell Edmonds, who they picked in the first round in 2018. Still, I acknowledge that there is a pretty Decently sized risk that's involved here. You know, if Mason Rudolph, now that they traded um, Josh Dobbs to Jacksonville to back up the legend Gardner Minshew, if Mason Rudolph gets hurt, then this is a terrible football team whose pick is going to be very high. So there is a lot of risk here. But as I said, assuming Mason Rudolph is healthy, I think their pick will not be in the top 10, will be from 11 to 15 or 16 or so. 
And in that situation, the contract surplus value and the talent of Minka Fitzpatrick is greater than whatever player you'd have picked in that spot. And also, getting from your fifth-round pick to Miami's fourth-round pick, that is a nice move up there. Sixth to a seventh isn't as consequential, but moving from your fifth to a high fourth, if that fourth is Miami's fourth, that could be pretty valuable for Pittsburgh, especially as a team who uh, last year in the draft um, traded up with Denver to get to 10 to pick Devin Bush and use draft capital within this draft as part of the trade package they sent out to get up to 10 to pick Devin Bush. So overall, Miami did great with this trade. Pittsburgh, it depends on what happens with Rudolph, if he's bad, if he stays healthy and whatnot. But I get their thinking, and I don't think it's as bad of a trade as people are making it out to be because I think that if it ends up that they pick from 11 to 16, they'll have ended up with a better player and contract than they otherwise would have had they not made this trade. Now, speaking of guys in the secondary and trades, we got to go to Jacksonville now. Jalen Ramsey played last night, has not been traded to this point, but we look at Jalen Ramsey, right? Just as a player, Jalen Ramsey, depending on your preference between Jalen Ramsey and Stephon Gilmore, is at worst the second best corner in the NFL. Yes, he is young and coming up for that big um, second contract. To me, you know, with Jacksonville, they had been saying or had been reported earlier in the week that Ramsey didn't think he'd be with the Jaguars by Sunday or that they would maybe trade him on Friday. Now here on Friday at 6.30, that has not happened. But if that is truly what Jacksonville was thinking, that, hey, we could probably trade him after we play on Thursday, to me it's a little bit risky and not the greatest uh, tactic to have put Ramsey out there and had him play on Thursday and risk him getting hurt. Now, of course, if a trade doesn't materialize and you sat him for a week and he has to play again the next week and you have to sit him again, then that opens up an incredible issue and can of worms. Um, So we'll see what happens as far as the timeline with trading Ramsey. But really, I think what the, the thing I want to talk about here is the asking price. So it came out that their asking price is two first round picks. And for a player of Ramsey's caliber and his age and where he is as far as coming up for that second contract, I think seeing the recent trades that have happened in the NFL, the increase in blockbuster trades that have happened, right? We had the Khalil Mack trade last year. We had the Laramie Tunsil trade and the Odell Beckham trade before this year, right? Tunsil getting two firsts and a second back uh, with the fourth and sixth going the other way. Khalil Mack getting two firsts back with a second going the other way. Odell Beckham, that that's, that's a whole different situation, but getting a first and a third and a player who was picked in the early 20s in a couple years before. So if you look at the players there traded and you look at contending teams out there who would have interest, I think two first-round picks is plenty reasonable as a starting asking price. Does that mean that I think they're ultimately going to get two firsts for him? 
If I had to bet on it, I would bet that they don't. But starting at that point and potentially, you know, uh, if they were to hold very strongly to that asking price, I think that's totally reasonable. You look at a team like the Kansas City Chiefs. The Kansas City Chiefs should have all the interest in the world in Jalen Ramsey. The Philadelphia Eagles should have all the interest in the world in Jalen Ramsey. We look at Baltimore, who this past offseason seemingly subscribed to the belief that the um, that corners are more important than an edge rusher or a pass rusher. That's a big debate that's going on uh, right now. Baltimore, clearly with their actions, are valuing the secondary more. And if that's, a, uh, if that's the mindset they're subscribing to, and with how much they took in with uh, comp picks this offseason, Baltimore should be a team that should have plenty of interest in trading for Jalen Ramsey. And if you also look at it, if you're a team like a Kansas City or a Philadelphia or a Baltimore, and you're squeamish or concerned about that big second contract for Ramsey, you could still get either a comp pick for him, or you could get him in there, have him on your team for this year, and kind of in the, uh, like a Brandon Cook situation with the Patriots and Rams a couple of years ago, you could trade for him, have him there for a year, and he'll if he's healthy, he still maintains his value, and you could flip him again for a first-round pick. So to me, getting that level of player, arguably the second, or to me, I think the best corner in the league, but at worst, the second best corner in the league, a major premium position for at least a year, and then be able to flip him again or to sign him long-term, I think it makes all the sense in the world for those three teams I just mentioned. And I mentioned also I don't think they'll ultimately get the two firsts in return. I think a first and a fourth, I think, is very much what I could see them getting for Ramsey. Um, You know, we've seen teams like Seattle be in the mix for him as well. So many teams should be in the mix here for Ramsey. Even teams that, you know, aren't necessarily the top-tier contenders in the league. Those types of teams should have significant interest in Ramsey as well. Because if you can get a player of this caliber at such a premium position for a first and a third or a first and a fourth and have the ability to lock him up long term, that's a chance you got to jump at. So I'm very interested to see what happens with that process with Ramsey moving forward um, over the course of the season, see if they ultimately trade him, which I believe that they will. Um, But that's an interesting situation to monitor with them moving forward. All right, 640 now here on WSOE, or if you're listening after the fact on iTunes or podcast.com. That is all for this week's episode here of After the Final Whistle. Again, I am your host, Brad Clear. Um, You can follow me on Twitter at BradClear underscore. Clear is spelled K-L-I-E-R. WSOE listeners, check back here every Friday, 6 o'clock, for more episodes of After the Final Whistle. Apple Podcasts and Podcast.com listeners, show uploaded very quickly after 7 o'clock on Fridays. Shout out to you, the listener. Shout out to trade season here in the NFL. Shout out to the New York Giants throwing Daniel Jones out there. Again, I am your host, Brad Clear. And as always, goodbye and good night.